So if you don't know what, we have a pastoral staff. We have five guys on it. So you have me, Pastor Ken, Pastor Jared, Pastor Derek, and Pastor Trevor. And what we have decided to do, we started last week, we're going through a series called Nine Marks. It's a series of about 11 books that talk about the main things of ministry, and we are going through them with our staff, and we're reading these small books, and then we're basically hammering out both our theology and our, how we pragmatically work out our theology. We want to get the main thing main. And so we started off with this book, and it's called The Gospel. Simple little book. It's trying to explain what is our main message. And in this book, um, last week we read this passage that I think is a perfect way to start today's message. And it talks about the difference between a large G God and having a small G God. And listen to what he says. First of all, who is God? That's the first question of the Gospel. Because the word God is so familiar to us that we often gloss over it. But we need to think about it. Not one of us has ever had a single thought about God that was fully fair to the magnitude of who he really is. So who is the God of the Christian gospel? And instead of explaining it, he, this writer says, what I want to do is I want to turn it upside down. Greg Gilbert uses satire to help us see how we naturally diminish, that means bring down our concept of God. So he's going to describe the small g God. Here's what he says. Let me introduce you to small g God. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the, one, the ones he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared about what he thought and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though, and, and God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness. All the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who really is easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it usually, usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless it's all right by him. That is really the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me. Ever. For anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm human, and nobody's perfect, and I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides... Forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. 
After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as, quote, never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know, and I wouldn't have him any other way. Okay, we can, we can stop talking about him now. And don't worry, we don't have to stay long with him. Really, he's grateful for any time he can get. So that's the small G God. I was trying to think of an illustration of what I think he would look like. I think he'd look a lot like this. Remember the Princess Bride? And in the Princess Bride, she's, the princess is, she gives this old king a kiss on the cheek. And he says, what was that for? And she said, oh, you've been so kind. And I just think this is the last time I'm going to see you because tomorrow morning I'm going to kill myself. And he says, oh, that's nice, dear. Kind of oblivious to everything. That's the, I think we think God's like that, honestly. I think if the small g God is the God you think exists, everything in your life, everything, and I mean everything, will be tainted because thoughts lead to actions. And if your thoughts are tainted, your life won't have heaviness. It won't matter, really. And I think that's why the world is a mess. I'm going to refer to it a little bit more, but like the floods in Nebraska and Minnesota, when your God is a small g, evil will flood its banks and there will not be anything he can do about it. It'll just start taking over the countryside. This is what's going on today in our study of Genesis 19. So if you could turn there, and I would say hands down, hands down, this is one of the worst stories besides the crucifixion in all of the Bible. I, I tell you what, I hated studying it this week. I thought I'd enjoy it. I hated it. Because not only do the images burn in your mind, if you're going to imagine it, it's horrendous. But the, but the, car, uh, the carnage at the end, the carnage, like probably 30,000 people were slaughtered from fire and brimstone from the sky. That's terrible. But you know what the thing that really bothered me the most? It's, it's like reading our front page news. So here's how we're going to attack this. I want to kind of bring you into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like I'm going to hand you a program, and we're going to work through the program in three acts. So here's your program, Sodom and Gomorrah. Act one is going to be called Enough. Enough, that means when God has enough. Act two is going to be when total depravity becomes total. What does it look like when total depravity totally takes over? And then act three is going to be flee. Get out. Run. Don't just run. And then we'll have final thoughts or concluding thoughts. So let's begin with Act 1. Let's read it, Genesis 19, 1 through 3. Act 1 is titled, Enough. Genesis 19, 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. So that means he's He's got high rank. He's a high-ranking official. The gateway of the city means he's at a place of import. He's important. So Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city, and when he saw them, so he sees these two men coming to the town, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. So he knew these guys were important. I don't know if he knew if they were angelic, but he knew these guys were seriously important. Very important people. So he bowed down. 
face to the ground. And so all that stuff, he didn't show hospitality. They show hospitality, or he does. Verse 2, my lords, he said, please, turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. And it was a customary thing to wash their feet because they live in the desert. They walked a long distance. Here, have a seat. It's kind of like, come on in my house. I'll take care of you. You can, if you need to, go take a quick shower. I'll wash your feet, whatever. No, they answered no. No, no. We'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So he made a nice dinner for them. They said they probably had some lamb and some unleavened bread. This chapter, specifically the events, are linked with the chapter right before it. If you go back to chapter 18, verse 20 and 21, you, it gives you why chapter 19 exists. 18, 20, and 21, the Lord, who's one of the three walking with the other two, said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So they're sent because God hears, he hears their sin coming up to his ears, their outcry. It's over flooding its banks, if you will. And so what he does is he sends these angels to spy out the bad land. For the purpose of what? Look at verse 28. He's sending them to see if he can find any people that are good, because if they're not, he's going to destroy it. Verse 28. Verse 31, he's going to destroy it. Verse 32, he's going to destroy it. So, the intent of chapter 19, these two men are sent. It's kind of like the opposite of spying on the promised land. It's spying on the cursed land. And they're not scared of the people going into the land because they're the ones to fear. Because they're coming to destroy. That's the point. That's what's going on. Because the outcry has reached God's ears. There's this, if you believe in a small g God, there's a notion that he never loses his patience. It's always there. It's unending. As if he's always going to forgive you. But if you know this big G God, there's a point to where he has a limit. I want you to go to Romans. We're going to keep going back to chapter 19, but I want you to see Scripture on your own. I want it to speak to you today. Go to Romans 2. Romans chapter 2, to me, personally speaking, is one of the scariest verses in all of the Bible. It's a, it's a behind-the-curtains verse. Gives you a sneak peek of what's really going on in the world. So if you want to understand the world rightly, Romans 2, 4, and 5 tells you what's going on behind the scenes. Let me read it and then I diagrammed it for you to show you. Romans 2, 4, and 5. Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. So yes, God is patient, but there's a purpose behind the patience. The purpose behind the patience is repentance. That's what he's saying. And then you go to verse 5, but because of your stubbornness 
and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. So here's the diagram. So you have on the right side, this guy is sinning. He's a sinner. And God hears what he's doing. God hears and he sees everything. He does. And so each sin is kind of starts stacking up. And then it gets worse. And then it gets worse. And then it gets worse. And the reason why you don't see anything happening to you is because God is kind. He's rich in patience and kindness. And he stores it up. The reason nothing is happening to you is because God is storing it up. It's not because he doesn't see. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, but you weren't willing to come to me. I long to gather you, but you don't want me. And then you have Revelations 18.4. Listen to this. This is Revelations 18.4. This is terrifying. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, her punishment, that's wrath, for her sins are piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crime. So what happens is there's a limit. And when the outcry reaches God's ears, He has enough. So if you go back to the story, this is when God has enough. If you notice in verse 1, the two angels arrive at Sodom in the evening. That's 19 verse 1. The last time we saw these two angels, they were visiting Abraham by the great trees of Mamre. The distance between Sodom and Mamre, there's some discrepancy because they're not sure exactly where Sodom is. If it's in the southernmost part of the Dead Sea, it's 120 miles away. If it's the northernmost, it's about 40. Some speculate where there's some sulfur pits down there, about 60 miles away, 70 miles away. So 70 miles away from Mamre takes three three. Uh, to go three mile, hour, three miles an hour to walk. So if you're going to walk that, it would take you 20 hours. That's, we're saying 60 miles. But they get there within four to five. They're fast. They're probably, Jill probably taught them cross country. So they can, they're fast. But the intent is they got there fast because judgment comes swiftly. Psalm 104 verse 4 says, He sends His angels who ride the wind. And then Leviticus says, when I'm ready, I will bring upon you sudden terror. So in other words, when God has enough, He acts fast. So from the story, we need to also understand the reason He acts fast is because He's not stupid. He's not the small G God who's old and out back puttering in the garden. Galatians says He won't be mocked. That is why in verse 2, you have a really interesting dialogue. Look at the dialogue in verse 2. My Lord, he says, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then, you know, get up early and just get out of here. And they say, no. And they, I think they say it like this. No, you know what? 
we're going to spend, spend all night outside. Uh, n- no. Nope, no, no. What you need to, that's why verse 3, I'm insisting, you stay in here. Why? Because he knows. He knows what's going on. It's funny, I can remember my sister, when my mom and dad would go to bingo sometimes, they like to go to bingo on Saturday nights. I know some of you don't play bingo. My parents played bingo. Don't judge them. They were Catholic at the time, you know, so they played bingo every Saturday night. And if they won, they'd bring home pizza. It was a great deal for me. But sometimes when they would go play bingo, my sister would have her friends over who would have some beer. And then what they would do is they'd take the beer cans and they'd throw them across the railroad tracks. And what's really funny is my dad knew it. My sister didn't know he knew it. So when he came home, he always walked the dog by the railroad tracks. And my sister, for some reason, that'd be the one time she always volunteered to walk the dog. Dad, I'll walk. No, Gene, I'll walk. No, Dad, Dad, let me walk the dog. Or have you ever walked in on your kids and all of a sudden the station changes really quick? Hey, what were you watching? Can I see? Go back. No, 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 nothing. I was watching um, Hannah Montana or something like that. Or, you know, you go, hey, can I see your phone? Oh, battery's dead, dead. You, can I see what you're looking at? Battery's dead. Or when I was a youth pastor, I can remember I'd turn on the lights in the gym, and in this back room, I'd find a guy and a girl, and I'd say, hey, what are you guys doing back here? Oh, we're looking for soccer balls. Well, there's about 100 out on the floor right now. What are you doing back here? God's not stupid. He sees what you're doing. He knows what you do. So, when he sees what you're doing, I wonder, do you think God has enough? Has God had enough? Here's the main problem with asking that question. And this is what we don't understand. The exact time, the exact time when God has had enough is the exact time when most of us have written him off. The exact time when he's had enough is the exact time when we, he has morphed into a small g to us. Listen to what Jesus, or Psalm, go to Psalm 50, 21. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Psalm 50, 21. So verse 21 in Psalm 50 says, These things... These things you have done, and I've kept silent. What things? Well, you know, you sin, you adultery, you steal, you speak continually against my son Jesus, probably taking his name in vain. These things, these sins you're doing, and I'm keeping silent. And you know how we view God when he keeps silent? He says, you thought I was altogether like you, meaning you morphed me into a small g God. You think I'm just another guy. But, I, uh, I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. That's terrifying. That's why Jesus says in Luke 12, 39, you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Why? Because the moment He decides He's had enough is the moment we turn Him into a small g. Act 2 when depravity becomes total, let's go back 
to Genesis 19, and you want to buckle up for these passages. Starting in verse 4. So they just uh, says he prepared a meal for them. Verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, so the idea is it's dark outside. It's dark at the city. It's night. So before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young boys and old, what are boys doing there? This is adult behavior, isn't it? Well, the boys get caught up in it too, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Huh? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them, shut the door behind him. You can see him kind of holding the doorknob behind his back, and he's and he says, Ah, uh, no, my friends, no fellas, don't do this wicked thing. Look, 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 make a deal with you. I have two daughters who haven't slept with the man. They're virgins. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want with them. How about that? But just don't do anything to these men, for they've come under my protection, my roof. You know, some people say, well, it's because he understands hospitality. I think he knows these guys have significant weightiness to them. They're emissaries from heaven. He's, he knows he's in trouble. Like, there's this big thing about, well, you know, the customs of that day is you take care of your visitors, which is true, but this is going, you don't take care of your visitors to the point where you give your daughters to men. It's weird when you read commentators how they don't take the seriousness of this. Get out of our way. Get out of their way. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. I mean, Lot, who do you think you are? And now you want to play the judge? You want to tell us what to do? We'll treat you worse than them. That's sick. They kept bringing pressure on Lot, moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. <laughs> yeah, okay. God's going to destroy it. Yeah, right. When I read this the first time, like I was reading this while I was reading the news, and it it's, it makes you shudder if you try to imagine it. It started reminding me a little bit about how I started seeing the, the destruction of what happened in Nebraska and Minnesota this last week. It was terrible. It's both fascinating in one sense, but it's horrifying. Look at some of these pictures. It's kind of like this. So that's the Missouri River last year at this time on the left side. This is the Missouri River last week. That's how much flooding happened in Nebraska. But it, you know, it's an aerial view, so it doesn't look like much. So let's go in a little bit. That's one of the main highways or thoroughfares 
in one city, right in that area of the Missouri Delta. Then you go a little bit further in, so just to get across, a guy has to walk. Because look at all the logs and everything that have been swept in. And then if you go a little bit into some of the communities, they're just it's horrendous what the floods have done. And even going to some backyards and just, that guy's got a generator on the back of his truck trying to get something. But when a flood comes, it just, when it's bad, it overrides its banks. When it overrides its banks, you can't stop it. That's the point of evil. When evil in a society runs past its banks, that means its normal path. When you stop living the way you've been designed, you can't stop the damage. It ruins both the offender and the offended. The innocent and the guilty get caught up in the flood. This is how it happens in Sodom. I call it the Sodom three-step, and it's something America is doing right now. Step number one of the Sodom Three-step is the searing of the conscience. That happened in verses 3 and 4, where he's insisting, he's insisting, they, you know, it's not, he's not a, he's embarrassed, he's embarrassed for them, but he's not broken by what the people are doing. In verse 8, he's willing to, willing to keep them happy by offering up his daughters. So what is happening to Lot is Lot no longer blushes with what they do. It doesn't faze him. I think he's seared his conscience. And any of us who've lived in a warped culture for any certain period of time, the same thing starts happening. Here's, here's the best definition I've heard of searing the conscience. And you find this verse in 1 Timothy 4.2. But here's the best definition of searing the conscience. The conscience acts as a judge who smiles upon obedience and frowns upon disobedience. So you have this internal law. He doesn't make the law, he's a judge. He smiles when you obey this internal law or the law of God and he frowns on you on the inside when you disobey it. And so what happens is the way he passes judgment, when you disobey you feel guilt, shame, and remorse. That's the conscience. Guilt, shame, and remorse. When you obey you feel pleasure. You feel, yeah, I feel good. There's a freedom there. What searing does is you no longer hear either of those sentences. You're, you're insensitive to the verdict. Searing means you take sensitive skin, burn it, cauterizes it, and you can't, there's no sensitivity. Your heart's been cauterized. You don't feel guilt. And you don't have much pleasure in goodness. So the conscience will say you're guilty. The culture you live in, it's telling you you're guilty, but your heart doesn't care. Serious things you laugh at. And long-term implications are ignored. It starts really small, but it lands heavy. Where you start tolerating things you never would just a couple years ago. One writer believes that Lot was the leader in the city, like a politician. So in order to retain his position... In order to get the votes, in order to remain popular, he decided not to speak up when the culture was sliding down. He gave in so he'd be liked. He's willing to give his daughters to the mob to keep them happy. One writer says, rather than to raise the moral conscience of the sodomites, he offers to assuage their lust 
by handing over his two virgin daughters. This is disgusting. Would you hand your daughters over? Do you love them enough that you would say no? Are your convictions strong enough to say no? No one here, no one in here would give their daughters up to the mob, would they? What if the mob wants your daughter to go drink on the beach at spring break wearing bikinis? Would you let them go? Or, or your little daughters, do you let them post compromising pictures on Instagram? Is that okay? Yeah, everyone's doing it. Everybody's doing it. All of us. We have to be careful to let the culture not ever so slowly chip away at convictions. Just a few years ago, there was this act called the DOMA Act, Defense of Marriage Act. It was written in 1996 for the purpose of saying exclusive relationship between a man and a woman is good and sacred and healthy in a society. Two presidents agreed with that, President Bush and President Obama. But then there was a vice president called Joe Biden who stuck his finger in the air and said, ah, that, ah the DOMA thing, it's not as popular as it once was. So he, uh, he said he's for same-sex couples. Let's get rid of DOMA and let's not make this man and woman thing that exclusive anymore. And then in a wink of an eye, not only did the president agree, but everybody else's stance on on same-sex marriage, instantly evolved. I mean, in a day. It's where we're at now. People everywhere began to see the light, and they said, if you don't agree, you're on the other side of history. Everybody said that. But is it light that they're seeing? Or is it still darkness in the eyes of God? Small G-God doesn't see too well, so he probably sees light. Big G-God sees very clearly Made man, male, and female. Be fruitful and multiply. Step two, this two-step, or the three, Sodom's three-step is then not only, not only do you tolerate things, but you start inventing new forms of evil. That's what five through seven. Five through seven is when they banged on the house. They said, send those guys out. We want to do some stuff with them. Lot said in verse 7, look at Lot said, No, my friends, and look how he describes their actions. No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. What does that phrase, wicked thing, means? What is this wicked thing? Well, first of all, the phrase for wicked thing is raya in the Hebrew, which means it's an action that is both morally wrong because it rejects God's authority. It's rebellious against God's natural plan. So it's both morally wrong and it is destructive. That means it causes injury long-term to others. So it's morally wrong. It's rebellious against God's standards. And it's destructive. So what act do the men of Sodom want to do that rejects God's authority and causes injury to others? I'm just asking a question. I'm not making an opinion. What, what act? Verse 5 tells you what it is. Verse 5 said, They called the lot. Where are the men who came to you? So men are asking for men. Bring them out. Why? So we can have sex with them or know them. The men of the city want the men who are visiting Lot, the angels who look like men, to come out of the house so they can have sex with them. The commentator Victor Hamilton says, the nature of Sodom's sin is clear. The Hebrew word yada, which means to know, connotes sexual knowledge. This is not a 
as some liberal media, uh, as some liberal scholars will maintain, this is not a violation of the rules of hospitality, but rather the men want the angels to come out so they can abuse them sexually. It's homosexual rape. Lot and Scripture call this action of homosexual rape as wicked and sinful. So some people hear that phrase, homosexual rape. So, you, so this isn't really you know, healthy homosexual couples. And I think that lie is being promoted that there is such a thing as healthy homosexual couples. To be honest with you, I'm not going to go into it right now, but they use that so, the, so they have this appearance of being healthy and very good while really, do you know what's really going on in the homosexual circles? Seriously? Do you know how the life expectancy is terrible? See, the, the lie is it is healthy. But the, tr- the truth is a whole lot worse. And so in the story, what they want to do is outside God's sacred, good and healthy intent and design for human beings. They don't care. They want what they want, and they demand it. That's why in verse 9, they say to Lot, get out of the way. Get out of our way. In other words, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Romans 1, 28 and 32 talks about people who no longer find it worthwhile to follow God, so they start inventing new forms of evil. They invent forms of evil. They do what ought not to be done. We don't do this in the U.S., do we? Michael Jackson didn't do anything like that, did he? And Barbara Streisand didn't support what Michael Jackson did, did she? Like, it's, it's okay what happened there. It's no big deal. I just want to, okay, what I want to do is I just have four news reports. That's all I want to do. I'm just going to share with you. I'm not demonizing what's going on, but what I personally believe is I think there's signs that the water has gone over the banks, The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act tried to pass last month that failed in the U.S. Senate this past February. Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. What was it for? To protect babies that were born alive from abortion so they could survive. It was defeated. 53 votes in favor, 44 against. It needed 60 votes to pass. That means 44 senators of the United States said, no, well, let's keep it a political issue. Another one. Here's this, uh, there's a new website out. It's called Desmond is Amazing. Desmond is Amazing. It's getting a lot of hits. It's right up here. Here it is. Desmond Nepales is a 10-year-old drag kid. He's awarded LGBTQ advocate, outspoken gay youth. He's editorial and he's a runway model, public speaker, performer, founder of his own drag house and fashion designer. Founder of his own drag house. He probably didn't have any adults influence him at all. Probably not. He says people should be able to dance, sing, or dress in any way. You can express yourself however you want. If it doesn't matter if you like jazz or rap, ballet or ballroom, dresses or suits, you can just do you. I like Diana Ross. Maybe you do too. How did he learn? How do you know about Diana Ross, a 10-year-old kid? I mean, she's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad that he knew about Diana Ross, but to dress up like her? Here's another story. Transgender man gives birth to a baby boy. Tristan Reese is a trans man who had a baby with his partner of seven years. Reese, who was assigned a female gender at birth, posted a video in March explaining his decision to carry a baby as a transgender man. 
Reese told CNN in June that he had stopped taking testosterone to prepare for the pregnancy. Why would you need to stop taking testosterone? Oh, because he's a woman. And then this is, came up late last, last year. Title is not a boy or girl, family raising non-gendered baby. The child Sparrow's birth certificate reads sex unknown. Sparrow's mother says, we are in no way prohibiting Sparrow from having a gender. We're not forcing them to be one gender or another. The mother believes that there's nothing wrong with any color or toy, but there is something wrong with forcing your kid into roles. There's some, so they call him a baby. So her other daughter is named Hazel. Hazel, the age of four, asked her mother about all the, what she is. And she said, you can be anything you want to be. You can be this and this, and you can be a demigirl. He goes, what's a demigirl? A demigirl is a half-girl, half-person. So when you feel like a girl, you can be a girl. When you want to be a person, just be a person. I want to be a demigirl. And the mom's eyes said, that's great. You didn't influence her? No. Americans are now so free, and that's our number one value, that we don't have to live by anybody's constraints, including God's. But don't worry about it. You spell it with a small g. He'll be fine. Which leads to step three. Step three is corruption becomes the norm. Look at verse 14 again. So a lot went out. Well, verse 9 we read verse 9 already. Verse 9 is basically what happens is uh, the good man becomes the bad man because corruption is now the norm. The floodwaters of evil have so broken over their banks that the final stage is when wrong has become right and right is wrong. And so the crowd against Lot uses the number one argument in verse 9. Verse 9, get out of our way, they said. This fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. You have no right to judge me. Don't judge me. It's the number one argument. Who are you to tell me what's wrong? Who are you to tell me what's wrong? So what happens, and here's how the last step happens. What happens is the person who's making the moral judgment, who's just saying, you know, this is wrong that you should sleep with my, well, really, sleep with my visitors. These guys are so, here's how warped they are. They would rather sleep with Lot than his two daughters. And he's wrong for saying so. <laughs> he's wrong for having an opinion on what you should do with his daughters. That's how far it goes. I don't have any right to tell you what's right or wrong that you can do with my daughter. What? So what happens is the person who's making the moral judgment becomes wicked in the eyes of the mob. It's, like, it's sort of like I remember when Chris Cuomo was talking about a transgender guy with a beard in a bathroom and a girl who was 16 felt, you know, felt unnerved. It said, I don't like being in a bathroom with a guy with a beard who says he's a woman. And Chris Como says, somebody taught that, tell that girl to quit being judgmental. It, see, see what, see? Lot, if you don't let us in there, we're going to treat you worse than we're going to treat the men in there. What is interesting is that evil led the people to be blind, physically blinded, but they've also become morally blinded. The, the physical blindness is a metaphor of their moral blindness, and that's what happened in verse 14. Look at verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry up and get out of this place because the Lord's about to destroy it. His sons, 
They were morally blind. <laughs> what? Come on. What's wrong with you? You take this Bible stuff too serious. Too serious. All this happens when corruption becomes the norm. Right is wrong and wrong is right. Read Isaiah 5, 20-24 later on and tell me if that's not America. So as much as you want to try... You can't reason with evil. You can't because it's, they're blind. When you try, like Lot did with the townsfolk, you can be nice to them for a while, like you can be nice people. You can even kind of look past their sin a little bit, but if you don't turn and join them or support or accept them or celebrate what they're doing, they will turn on you. It's what Winston Churchill said about the crocodile. You feed the crocodile, but eventually the crocodile will come for you. I know many of you have friends out there and you want to support you want to support them. And you hear the arguments and here's the number one argument you're going to hear. It's going to be like this. And I know and I'm not saying and I probably sound like I'm mean. I'm telling you. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to say we serve a big G God. But here's the number one argument you'll hear, especially when people do th- are outside the bank. So say but God's a God of love. And he loves me the way I am. And Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, is the best response for it. God does not love us in our sin. He loves us in spite of our sin. He loves me in spite of what I'm doing. That's why he sent Jesus to die for me. Because love wants what's best. And you know what's best? Living within the banks of the river. That's how I've been designed. But when people start loving the sin, when people start loving the sin over God, that's when judgment is sent. So when the sin becomes your God, that's when judgment's sent. So you come to Acts 3, which is just flee. 15. The coming of dawn, starting verse 15, with the coming of dawn, the angels urge Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city's punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand. God will always, God's the one that saves you. The men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord is merciful. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said, Lord, please. He's, he's probably old and tired out. Your servant has found favor in your eyes. You've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me. I'll die. I can't do it. All right, all right. Look. Look here. There's a town near enough to, the, to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small. Then my life will be spared. Okay, very well. I will grant this request. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That's why the city's called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. So what I'd say in the Act 3, don't try to figure the lore of sin out. Don't reason with it. Don't justify it. When sin takes over a culture, 
When people who are once your good buddies give in to it, there's only one thing to do. Run. Run from them. Read 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 2.22. It says, Flee the evil desires of youth, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So go with those people who are pure. Run to them. Instead of trying to hang with people who keep sinning, there comes a point in time we needed to leave and find a group who values purity. Purity always begins in the heart. And that really is the problem with Lot's wife. She physically left Sodom. She physically left it. But her heart never did. That's why she looked back. Here's how one writer explains to her why in the world did Mrs. Lot turn and look back. I think the reason's twofold. First of all, she did not want to leave Sodom. She loved Sodom. Her body walked out, but she left her heart there. It's a lot of Christians whose heart is still in the bar in the basketball court, and on the beach. And then the writer says, Secondly, she did not believe God. God said, leave the city, but don't look back. Lot didn't look back, the writer says. He believed, but Mrs. Lot did not believe God. She was not a believer, so she's turned into a pillar of salt. She's judged. I personally think Mrs. Lot saw God as a small g. He doesn't really mean what he says. He wouldn't destroy the city, would he? This is our story. This is where we live. Do you believe that? The conclusion, I'm not going to read it. It's verses 30 through 38. It's a terrible conclusion. Basically what happened is evil spills over to everything. It affects everything. So what happened is because Lot's daughter's son-in-laws died, they didn't have any kids. So what they did is they got their dad drunk, slept with them, and had kids through their dad. So the abused became the abuser. Evil warps everything. I have thought long and hard about, like, what, do I, what would you say to the homosexual? What, what would I say if I was on the Ellen show? Or what would you say to somebody who's transgendered? Or what if, and they'll usually come up to you and they'll ask you about a specific sin and they'll say, what do you think about homosexuality? What do you think about transgender? What do you think about abortion? And I'm not sure arguments work because what happens with sin is it catches all of you. It catches your heart, emotion, your tastes, your dreams. And then if you just argue with logic, it's cold, actually. So how do you talk somebody? Let's say they approve of homosexuality. I think you need to ask a very simple question. There's only one question you can ask somebody before you answer theirs. Which God do you believe in? Do you believe in the small g God or do you believe in the biblical God? It really matters. So like let's say Ellen asked me, say, do you believe sins, homosexuality is a sin? I'd say, Ellen, before we get there, here's my question. I just have a question. Do you care like, do you think God doesn't care? Like, if you care about God, then I'll answer that question. But I'm not sure you care about God's opinion because to you, he's small. He's tiny. I can push him out back to the garden. But if God is holy, I'll answer it for you. Actually, Ravi Zacharias answered it like this. Somebody went up to Ravi Zacharias, who's an evangelist for Christianity, and they asked him, they said, is Gandhi in hell? Because Gandhi is good. I mean, this guy, is a, he was a good Hindu man. He was a kind man. 
He was, you know, he would practice nonviolent uh, political revolution. You know, Gandhi is a, a figure that's re- revered. And Ravi Zacharias, who's also from India, where Gandhi is, he said, your question is wrong. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, you're assuming. And you got to listen real close to this. He goes, in your question, you're assuming somebody on their own can stand in the presence of a holy God, but you cannot. Do you understand what he's saying? The only way, the only way I can survive the face of God, because you can't look at God's face and live. The only way I can survive God's face is if I'm in Christ. If I'm covered in His righteousness. This has nothing to do with homosexuality, abortion, or anything. The issue is, is the Spirit of God alive in me? When the Spirit of God's alive in me, He'll start working these issues out. But it all begins with, is God small or big? You have to ask that to yourself. Because some of you have friends that are homosexual. And yeah, you have to love them, you have to be kind to them. But what they do in that kindness, they'll often turn you and you'll start diminishing God. And when you start diminishing God, that's when you get into trouble. Because when His judgment's sent, it comes fast.